As we continue our study at Exodus, I have the privilege of reading God's Word uh, from chapters 19 and 20. We'll be reading the first eight verses of chapter 19 and the first three verses of chapter 20. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 76 and 77 or on the screens behind me. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them, All these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God's word for God's people. Good morning, everyone. If you're new with us or you haven't been here in a while, we have been working through uh, the second book in the Bible called Exodus. And we haven't uh, gone verse by verse or chapter by chapter, but theme by theme. And all the themes have been centered around this one theme, and that's the story of redemption. And that we said from the beginning that their story is our story. And so we find meaning to our individual stories in the story of redemption that the Bible tells. And the book of Exodus uh, summarizes that in all of its parts. And so we've been walking through, uh, looking at the story of redemption. And we come to that section in the book of Exodus that probably most of you, uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church, are familiar with, because it contains the law of God, specifically the Ten Commandments and Uh, Even if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament or unfamiliar with the Bible as a whole, you're familiar enough with that at some point, uh, God gave the law, what's often called the law, or the Ten Commandments. And and Ten Commandments are just summary statements. Literally, there are hundreds of commands between chapters 19 and chapter 24, which is all of the chapters that... Uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and delivers these laws back down to the people who after three months of, of walking in the desert from coming out of Egypt got to Mount Sinai to worship in chapter 19. And so this summary encounter uh, with Moses is recorded for us here. And so we have to, at very beginning, before we can look at the law itself, we have to uh, kind of clear some of the brush that's out there that is accompanied uh, by the law. And, and one of the things that is often 
uh, said by modern people is that why in the world are we even talking about the law? You Christians, uh, don't you say that we're under grace, not under law? We're modern people. Modern people don't attach the law to religion. And really, we tend to make a couple of errors or a couple of mistakes with regard to the law in the Bible. Uh, One uh, mistake that is often made is that the law has everything to do with religion over our faith. And that's where your salvation, your, your identity, everything is tied up in the law. The other extreme or the other error that we often make is that it has nothing to do with religion or your faith. And so uh, think of it as two ditches that you could fall off into as you're driving down the highway. One is that the law becomes the basis for your salvation and as a result, or your redemption. And as a result, you feel uh, pretty queasy about your relationship with God because you never truly understand that sometimes you get your liter, uh, literally your ox in the ditch and can't get out because you've really messed up or you're feeling really, really good because you're in the middle of the road and you feel a lot of assurance. And so I want to clear the decks that the Bible is more nuanced than that. The Bible is more multifaceted when it talks about the law than simply it means everything or means nothing. If those are the only two choices that we have before the house today, then we've got a problem. Because the Bible doesn't represent the law in either of those two ways. In fact, this morning, I want to advocate that there are five purposes for the law. I know that makes you queasy that there's possibility of five points to a message when it usually takes me 40 minutes to do three. But let me tell you a sixth, one that it is not. Before we talk about the law and its purpose, let me tell you one purpose that the law for which the law was not given. It was not given to save you. It wasn't given to save us. In fact, the, the evidence that I want to give you is just a couple of things that were uh, uh, read to us by uh, David Driftmeyer just a, a moment ago as he begins in chapter 20. Uh, uh, Moses is writing, I am, this on behalf of the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And then he begins, you shall not have any other gods before me and on and on. But he sets up an order that I think we must observe to understand or we will fall into one of these two ditches. And the, and the order, one way to understand them is that sometimes the Bible makes indicative statements. These are statements that a fact. These are, these are statements of reality of truth. And then it makes imperative statements, not less than, than true, but it, you must do or don't do. And the way that the Bible presents them to us is it often presents them together, but in a specific order, because God knows we have the tendency to try to save ourselves 
that he often accompanies the indicative of salvation to the imperative of being saved. And if we mess that order up, it feeds our thought that God has started all of this and then said, now you do it from here on out. I'll watch, I'll help when needed. I'll come in and rescue you when things get beyond your ability to save. But in general, your salvation, your redemption is your individual story. Do the best you can. And so God knows that about the human race since the fall. We'll look at that next week when we go to the golden calf. But specifically this week, he's tying the imperatives, the commands, into his indicative. I am the one who saved you out of slavery. I'm the one who is redeeming you from sin and death. Now, because I've done that, past tense, this is how I want you to live because I have saved you. That order is just crucial and therefore the law cannot save. Well, then what good is it? What use is the law? Well, let me give you uh, five, I think, purposes. I, I know... Uh, greater minds than mine have come up with three, but I added two. The first purpose is to make us his love. I know that sounds like I'm saying that we obey and then we are saved. In fact, chapter 19 literally says, if you keep my covenant, then you will be my holy nation, a a, a kingdom of priests. I know it, it, it says it that way, but when you take it in its total context, it's really not saying quite that. It's saying something a little different than that. That is, God is saying, I already love you, and the evidence that I loved you is that I saved you because if I didn't love you, I would not save you. Because what would be the basis of God's rescue mission if he didn't love those he was rescuing? Otherwise, he he would have indifference toward us and allow us to remain slaves to sin and death. And so as we're in chapter uh, 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 19, there's a context to the law that is being given. And one of the things he says in verse 5, that's the one I'm, I'm referring to here. Now, therefore, that is, you've gotten here, you've come to worship. That's what 19 says. After three months, it says three moons. They've showed up. Uh, to Mount Sinai, they've come here to worship. And now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Bruce, that sounds like you're saying the opposite of what you said just a minute ago in your introduction, which is we're all saved by our works. We're saved by keeping the law, except for the context doesn't lean that way. Let me give you a different way to understand this by illustrating. Those of you who have dated, have married, desire to do so, how does that work? This isn't back in the old days where you could take a club and and club your future spouse and take her off with you. No, we're not talking about that. In order to woo somebody, you begin to understand what they delight in. 
and their delight becomes your joy. That is what he is describing here. God is going to give us all of these commands to tell us, this is what I delight in. Not to save you, but because you are my treasured possession. Because you are mine. And you know that's true. You don't feel coerced in those kinds of relationships. You don't feel exploited or manipulated. You do so. You seek to bring joy to the one in whom you are pursuing because your joy has been bound up in their joy. God is not saying, do this so that I can accept you. He can't mean that because he already accepts us. That is, the law reminds us that this is how you live if you have been redeemed. That's why he starts in 20 by saying, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land. In case you forgot, just three months ago, I delivered you from slavery. Now, or therefore, this is what I delight in. God doesn't say... I save you, now go free, do whatever you want, because that's really not freedom, that's just more bondage. He says, now that I have freed you, now love me as I design you to love me. And then he uses a, a very odd, specific Hebrew word here to describe his people. I say it's odd because... Three words are being used to translate this one Hebrew word. And therefore, it typically is lost in the translation. And it's this idea of my special possession or my treasured possession, as some translations have it. The, the reason this word specifically is only used in the context of a king who has conquered a land... And as king, he owns everything. That's why uh, the verse says in verse 5, not, chapter 19, for all the earth is mine. A monarch, a monarch owns everything. He not only owns his stuff, he owns your stuff too. And he owns you. That's the way we in America, because we don't have kings, and we, we don't live in Great Britain that has a pseudo king or queen, but in the real ancient world, a king owned everything. And so if he said, one day I need your cart, you gave cart and the ox too. Because he already owned everything. But every king, within all the things that he owned, had his own special treasured possessions. Objects of beauty and uh, objects of high value to him. That was his private wealth. That's the word he's using here. God owns everything in the cosmos. But of everything in the cosmos that is his, you are his private wealth, his special possessions. And so what's being said in the first purpose is, obey me so that you know I delight in you. I already delight in you, but you don't know it. So when you obey me, you get an idea of my delight. Because I told you this is what delights me. 
One way to put it is God has already told us he loves us. He's demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now he says, now show me your love by reveling in my love. And you say, well, how do I, how do I revel? How do I ravish the love of God? Keep my commandments. That's how you do that. Which brings us to the second purpose, is to make you a radically new community. Verse 2 of chapter 19. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Most ancient cities of the world, and you can still go see these ancient cities, most of them were built near a mountain. Partially... Uh, for defense purposes. That is, uh, when there was an invading army, they would get the high ground because whoever had the high ground tended to win the battles in the ancient world as you lob things off the top of those mountains. Well, many of these ancient cities, when they built their cities either halfway up or at the base of those mountains, at the top of the mountain, they would build their temples to be near God. Literally, what they were saying is that we are going to ascend the mountain to be with God. I'm going to prove myself by ascending the mountain and there I will get God's blessings. That's what they're saying in the ancient world. And you can still go to these ancient cities of Rome and, and Athens and Ephesus and you can see these temples on top of these mountains. But God is saying something very different here in Exodus. He's not saying, you do all of this and then I show up. I have showed up, now you do all this. Because he's setting up a different kind of city. If if history has shown us that there are two kinds of cities in the world, there are the cities that we make and there's the city that God has made. And they have two different organizing principles about them. If in the city of man, the organizing principle is, I go to the top so that I can get blessed by God. I earn it. I make my way. I pull myself up by the bootstraps. I am the one. In the city of God, the principle is God has come down and saves those who do not deserve it, who can't ascend. Very radically different ways to see. In one city, it is about those who make it and those who don't. Two kinds of people. And those that have made it are superior to those who have not. And what does the superior say to the inferior? If you were just to be more like me. To those who are less opportunistic and have less opportunities for education or opportunities for jobs, well then give yourself more because you can be anything you want to be in the city of man. But in the city of God, everybody recognizes that nobody's in the city on their own. Nobody has made it into this place because they have ascended the mountain. God came down. Two different attractions in these cities. If in, the, if in the city of man, we build our cities to attract the gods. We build these beautiful things to reflect the gods in which we love. In the city of God, he builds it to attract us. Can you imagine that? The God of the cosmos who's made everything that there is 
has made a city for us to attract us to it and therefore to himself. Two different identities. In the city of man, the identity, our, his identity is our identity. We have made gods in our image. Therefore, God always agrees with me. You ever notice that? God doesn't seem to contradict us much. And certainly not about the big things. So one of the ways you know that you've created your own God is because he's not often uh, contradicting you. He seems to love the same kinds of people you love and hate the same kinds of people you hate. Whereas in the city of God, he identifies with us so that we can find our identity in him. Very different. His city is counterintuitive. What do I mean? He's created such a different community. He calls it a holy nation, a minority community inside the city of man. And that community is fundamentally different. It's fundamentally different about sex and sexuality. It's fundamentally different about money and possessions. It's fundamentally different about relationships, both inside and outside the community. It is so different that you look liberal to conservatives. And you look conservative to liberals at the same time. Please hear this. It's not a political statement. But as we are faithful in being conservative with where we throw our bodies and liberal where we spread our possessions and money, to the conservatives of our culture are going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds like socialism or communism. No, it's biblical. That you're generous with his money because it never was ours. And then to, to those who are liberal, who says what you do between two consenting adults that doesn't hurt anybody doesn't matter. No, no, no. It always matters. We look incredibly conservative to them at the same time. One way you, you know that you're hitting it, it's not a balance. We're not the silent majority middle. We're not the moral majority middle. We are not even in the middle. We are at the two extremes at the same time. And therefore, our culture has no category for us. We're not conservative evangelicals, nor are we a liberal uh, uh, theologically. We are wholly different. And I think that's what makes the church so attractive to the world. So beautiful because we don't fit into any of their categories. We fit into God's category and that's wholly different because he's holy. The third purpose is to create a kingdom of priests, not only a holy nation. That same verse says a kingdom of priests and I can't imagine what it means to have a whole nation of priests because usually they're a minority of minority. What's the job of a priest? Have you thought much about that? The job of a priest 
is to usher in people into the presence of God. It's to bring people into the presence of God. The only way that's ever going to be accomplished in this world is if you and I have relationships with people who never darken the door of a church because they're not coming by hordes. There was, a, there was a day not that long ago where our culture looked at the church as the answer to many of its problems. And so when the problems arose in their family or in their individual lives, they at least checked out the church. That's just not true much anymore. And the priesthood of today requires us to go. I find it ironic that the, the, the silent word of the Great Commission is go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the mission of a holy nation. This is the mission of a radically beautiful community. But the truth is you cannot do it alone. You can't do community by yourself. The scripture clearly says you are a light of the world. You are the city on a hill, but he never meant for you to be the light of the city by yourself. People were going to see the glory, but only as we are a radically beautiful community in our city. People look into the Christian community and they see the alternative humanity, a different way to live. That's why our unity matters. Even Jesus is saying, guys, I pray for your, your unity that you would be one as our, me and my father are one. Even as we are to be one. Did you realize that every officer in our church, pastor or elder or deacon, all take a vow to unity? That's how important it is. And what you may not remember, depending on when you became a member of the church, there was a time where you didn't take a vow, but anybody who's become a member in the last two or three years, the vow changed to include unity. It's at the core of our witness to the world. This is why our ethic matters, how we, how we do business with, and life with each other. It's why our relationships matter. It's why our small group ministry matters. It's not because we thought it was a great idea. It was because how in the world are we going to live in community together with hundreds of people in the same room? We can't. That all has to be broken down into smaller segments where you learn how to live as a radically beautiful community with a few people. And so I encourage you, if you've been hanging on the sides wondering whether this is a fad that's going to go away someday, and you're just riding it out, go ahead, the water's warm, come on in. Because this is who we are not just what we do. Fourth purpose is to show us how our hearts work. Go back to chapter 20 in these opening verses where he says, and God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther does a commentary on the 10 commandments. And this is what he says at the very beginning of the 10 commandments. He says, you cannot break commandments two through 10 without breaking the first commandment. What he means by that is the sin underneath every sin that we commit 
find their foundation in loving something more than God. Someone more than God. That is, putting a higher priority on someone or something else than God. And that's why he starts, do you remember who I am? Before he said, now live this way. Because the foundation for obeying is who he is and what he's done for us. And then that's why it's such a cosmic treason, as C.S. Lewis calls it, or, or such a rebellious act to say, you're not enough for me. I need this too. And in fact, unless you give me this now, I won't love you. Now, nobody sits around and says that. But that's why we need the law to reveal our hearts because that's where our hearts are. Unless you understand the law of God this way, you will never understand your heart and how it works. You know, in that first commandment, have no other gods before me, there's a New Testament version of that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What he's referring to is order your loves. God is not saying don't love other people or other things but don't love them more than me. That's what it means to put something before someone else, to put someone before a face, is to say, this is my love more than you. Something has to be first in your life. And God says, because I rescued you, because I love you, I must be first. And that's what the law does. It exposes that. And so how do, you, how do you change your heart from loving other things to loving him first? Thomas uh, Chalmers, who was a Puritan pastor, put it this way. The only way to dispose the heart, dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. What he means by if you, if you want your heart to love the world less and God more. If you want to love the good things of your life, your spouse, your children, your car, your job, less than God, don't just sit there and try to gut it out, to will it out. It won't work that way because your heart will convince you you can have both equally. Instead, Thomas Chalmers says, let me give you a different piece of advice. Instead of focusing on that which you shouldn't love most, focus on the one who loves you most. Show your heart something that is better, more beautiful, more compelling. Show the heart a better love. Which brings us to the last point is that the purpose of the law is to send us to Jesus, which is, who is that love? Verse 7 of chapter 19. I I love this. After the law comes, they say, we'll do everything the Lord has said. Really? Wouldn't it have been better if they would have asked their attorney, could we put this in a language that gave us an out if we didn't do it? We will do everything that, no, they should have said, we'll do mostly everything or lots of what God said we will do. 
but it's a covenant. And we're not quite familiar. The closest we get to a covenant is marriage, really. Where there's a promises and some stipulations. But, but even that in our culture seems to have lost its luster as a covenant. But the, the original covenants that are represented in the scriptures are very, very different than marriage here. What, what Moses is laying down is what God has called my covenant with you. And I promise to be your God and you will be my people as long as you keep the law. The moment you don't keep the law, then the covenant is over. You say, Bruce, but you started off so well and you went so poor because you left it all up to us. In chapter 24, at the very end of the law giving, Moses does something amazing. They've received the law. They've already committed. We're going to do everything that God had said. And then Moses takes a hyssop and he throws blood all over the people. What a horrendous picture in my mind of being uh, um, slung blood of some animal all over me. What he's doing is he's saying, we're going to ratify this covenant. I want you to know what's going to happen if this covenant isn't kept. You see, he's referring back to something that the fathers knew back in Genesis 15. When God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. And from you are going to be so many children. They're going to be like the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heaven. You're going to have so many followers of God come from your lineage that you can't even count them. And Moses asked rightly, well, God, how do I know you're going to do that? I I know you've been faithful all along here, but come on. I don't have any children. How am I going to have so many that you can't even count them? And God says, I tell you what, you go get me some animals. And Abraham goes and gets those animals. And he says, I want you to cut them in two, into pieces. And I want you to lay them out. The reason Abraham does that is because the ancient world has been doing that for hundreds of years. Whenever a king took over a land or a, king, a new king came to the throne, he would make these kinds of promises. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will make you wealthy. But you must do this for me. You must always be faithful to me. When I need an army, you need to volunteer. None of this conscription stuff. But if you fail me, What you see happening to these animals will happen to you because I'll bring my army back here and cut you to pieces. That's what Abraham knew that God was doing in Genesis 15. Except there's a turn. Instead of God turning to Abraham and say, Abraham, now walk. God gets him to go to sleep and God walks. You see, there are two ways to fulfill the old covenant. One way to keep it is to keep the law perfectly, not one time failing. The other way is when you don't keep it, that you pay the curse. See, there's two ways for the covenant covenant to be fulfilled. You know what Jesus says on the night in which he is betrayed? Besides, this is the cup of my affliction, which refers to this whole scene. He says, This is the cup of 
of the new covenant in my blood. He's saying, I have fulfilled both ends of the covenant for you. I have kept it perfectly. Not one time did I, was I disobedient to my father for you in your place. But I also need to make up for all the times you haven't. And so I am going to walk between the pieces. It's called the cross. When the very curse of God was emptied upon his son in our stead, in our place. That's why the writer of Hebrews will say, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled to, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. On the cross, Jesus' blood was shed because he received the curse. And we have received the blessing. I love the way Paul will, will get at this. When Paul talks about this, he does two things. He says, you died in Christ. He says, you are so identified with Jesus when he died on the cross, it's as if you died on the cross. And therefore, you don't have to fear the curse at all. It has been paid in full. But then he says something odd, also in the past tense. Now you are alive in Christ. He talks about the resurrection of Christ, that in Jesus' resurrection, we are so identified to him, we are now the resurrected people. And you say, wait a minute, I'm not, I hadn't died yet. No, but you, you haven't physically been resurrected, but you have spiritually been resurrected into Christ. You have this new life, and, and here's the purpose of the law, to give us a picture of what the resurrected life looks like in a radically beautiful community that we are. And it's a minority community. It's a community that the world has no categories for. In fact, sometimes they think we're, we're incredibly conservative. And sometimes they, they think we're incredibly liberal. And that's okay. They're just grasping for categories. And that's why the mission of this radically beautiful community is to proclaim the gospel because they're looking for an answer to that conundrum. And we have it. And that's why the law continually takes us back to Jesus, because he is the fulfillment of the covenant on both ends for us. And we can live differently. It's the power in which we live differently. So let's ask him to do that for us. Father, in this room are your beautiful people. It only represents a small fraction of all the people in history, all the people alive today and all the people that will ever live. But we are your people, the beloved, those that you looked down and you said, I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and now have no other gods before me. Help us to understand this radically beautiful community that we are. We're, we're not the moral majority. We're not even the silent majority. Father, you have created us as the alternative minority in man's city. And I pray that the whole world will know you as Lord and Master and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.